Welcome to the next edition of Simon and White and the podcast at the Center of Politics, Media and Business. I'm Christian Whiten, former diplomat and PR guy, former finance guy, joined as always by co-host Mark Simon, who comes to us live from Taiwan tonight. Mark, say hello. Hi, everybody. How are you? You looks pretty good for a guy who's on day number two or three of a 14-day Dump- quarantine. Yeah, day number two of a 14-day quarantine. Very unhappy because I've spent 56 days in quarantine during the period. But I spent um, already, but 56 of those days were spent at my boss's house up in the mountain on Yaming Shan, which was very nice, quite wonderful. In fact, I must tell people when I was up there, if you gave me a couple of girls in bikinis, I would have been a Bond villain sitting up (laughs) in that place. So I was not unhappy at all there. Uh, now I'm in the, uh, uh, it's an okay hotel uh, suite. They got me a room. So I, I'm okay. And God bless Netflix and all these other things. So I, I'm not going to complain too much. I know, of, I know of other people who are in much smaller than, you know, 700 square feet. So I'm okay. Yeah, well, if you look healthy to me, I would I would let you walk around my country right now and not have to wait. But uh, you know, Taiwan, <laughs> like East Asia, it's just locked down. Um, I think Auckland yeah. is passing fifty five days of uh, of lockdown. Australia, that you know, was a prison colony and is a prison colony. Um, I, I, at least they, they Singapore be, has a plan. You know? I'm telling you, man. If I was in Australia, New Zealand, it, I would be like up in the hills like with bandanas on my arm, you know, they'd be hunting me down or something. It'd be, be one of those bad Mad Max movies. I'm telling you, you could, if you tried to lock Americans down for that long, I mean, there's already an ammo shortage. It would be much, much worse. <laughs> no Americans would never, I couldn't even imagine. And the funny thing was it would be a cross section. You know what I'm saying? It would be like the people in, you know, in New York city who don't like to get vaccinated anyway already. So you know, I mean, one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country is in New York City, comparably for the education and everything else like that. And we've just seen so many mistakes. But, you know, we'll talk business now. So I'm sorry about All that. Right. that on. Yes, All right. Yes. Well, we'll circle back to that later. Um, OK, well, you're uh, close to China. China would like you to be in China if they had their way with Taiwan. Yeah. But instead, you're breathing <laughs> the, the sweet air of freedom from your from your hotel lockdown. Um, all right, so we already did Evergrande previously, and and you know that caused certainly more than a blip in U.S. financial markets, but it's been largely ignored since then. Um, but things seem to be compounding in China. If you look recently, um, a number of land development, uh, property development companies have had real turbulence. If you look at their debt, a couple of them have defaulted, have missed important principal payments. Others just have had not quite a run on their debt, but people are only willing to pay 60, 70 cents on the dollar, whereas they were willing to pay 90, 95 cents before. And so just four of the many, Sunak, Kaisa Group, uh, and then two that were just yeah. downgraded by Fitch um, today, I believe, Fantasia and Sinek Holdings. Um, also, this comes as Nikkei Asia, the Japanese paper, interviewed economists, and there's a consensus, or at least an average, that um, China had GDP growth of just 5%, very low for them in the third quarter that just ended a few days ago. So, you know, we've gotten it. If you look, the market on Thursday in the United States was up dramatically. Supposedly, it's just because we reached a deal to extend the debt limit. I can't imagine people really care about that. Uh, if the government is a few days late, they'll issue IOUs, no big deal. But um, you know, people seem to have convinced themselves that China is is not relevant to U.S. And, or other foreign markets. Um, but here we have the second biggest economy in the world, China, 
that does look like it's entering a crisis. I mean, land development property is such a huge part of the economy there, and it seems to be, as I say again, in crisis. You've done business there for decades. What's your, what's your read on the situation? Well, first of all, where to put your money? Um, if I was people right now, I would put my money in the U.S., in Europe, uh, maybe in other parts of Asia, but probably the U.S. and Europe. Look, China is now hitting what I believe is the demographic wall. In other words, we have Evergrande, we have all these problems. If people were buying apartments and buying flats, Evergrande wouldn't be in trouble. So there's an underlying problem. The underlying problem is more Chinese are dying. Not enough Chinese are being born. There is absolutely no inward migration. I think the outward migration is much more than people think. It's hard to get numbers there, but I think it's at least several hundred thousand, and I mean 500,000 a year plus people leaving China. They just go in all different places. They show up everywhere, which is good for the countries that they go to. But overriding is there's a demographic problem, and there's, there's too many flats. There's not enough people. And I saw a fascinating statistic the other day. In 2008, something like 70% of the people were buying their first flat. Today, 70% of the flats sold are going to people who are buying flats as investments. These are people who are buying flats to speculate. They have never had any expectation of a yield. When I go back to the U.S. and people go, oh, what kind of yield did you get on that apartment in Hong Kong? Zero. 0 0.25. All people want to do is they want to cover the taxes. If they can cover the interest rate, the very low interest rate, they're happy with that. But they're looking for appreciation. Bought it for $2 million, want to sell it six years for $3 million or something like that. That's all it is. It's an appreciation game. I think that game is over in China. It's done. And the ripple effects are going to start happening more and more. Before I said to somebody, well, look at Alibaba, look at some of these other things. I just don't think the China market is anything you want to be near right now. Um, that when you have Goldman Sachs and all these other guys telling you, hey, there's still opportunities there. No, there's not. There's trouble there. And so unless you're Ray Diallo or unless you're a super smart quantum hedge fund manager who can trade just like that, you can't go there. You can't do it. Evergrande has done another thing, too. It's proved that the Hong Kong markets are basically the house, the house plays, house runs the casino. Have we seen anything out of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange of significance on this massive failure? Nothing. They're scared to death. They just want to collect their paychecks, you know, and do nothing. Paul Chan, the financial secretary, hasn't even peep, doesn't even peep a word other than say we're concerned. But that doesn't mean anything. So to me, China, you want to get out of there. The other thing, too, is I've lived through this a couple of times before, and I always go back to what happened. Yes, the dollar is getting stronger. Yes, the U.S. has inflation. Yes, we have a lot of problems. However, if you're sitting in the Philippines and you're wealthy, if you're sitting in Japan and you're wealthy, you've got to put your money someplace. And that is going to be the U.S. or Europe. And so I think we're going to see a decent run in the U.S. I'm not sure it's going to be equities or tech. I think we're going to see interest rates go up. And that interest rates, if those interest rates go up down the road, that will also attract money. So I don't know if the U.S. market is going to rocket through the roof. I'm not sure if the fundamentals are there for that. But we're going to see probably some pretty good job numbers tomorrow, probably around 500,000 now. We've heard that before and that it's bombed, but so far what we're seeing, it's getting better. And 
people are telling me when I was in the States, you could actually feel it getting a lot better. People are coming back to work. I actually had a conversation with a electro, electric, electrician with an electrical company, and he needed basic laborers, laborers like you know semi-skilled laborers. He said in the last month, all the guys who had left him before are now coming back. So he's getting his labor force back. Has directly to do with the fact they're not getting the free check anymore, and there's not as much cash jobs that they can, you know, substitute themselves that with. So that's happening. Mm -hmm. But to me, look, I think the the China property market is going to be a ball that just keeps going and going and going in a negative direction for China. And yeah, they can bail it out. Everybody always thinks that's not such a big deal until it is. And I think we're closer to it being a big deal than we are from it. In other words, who are they going to bail out next? You just named five or six property developers. I can name, think about this. There's thousands of medium and small size property developers in China. Thousands. Wow. They are not going to be able to stay around. And these are the type of business people who are basically going to say, hey, I'm in the outskirts of Shanghai. I've got two buildings under, I can't sell a damn thing. I've got this much money in the bank. I'm going to go to the bank. I'm going to take the money. And I'm going to move to Wuhan. I got an apartment down in Wuhan. I'm going to change my name and I'm not coming back. We're seeing, <laughs> we're seeing that happen already. I've already talked to some people who said we're seeing that happen. Banks are not letting property companies withdraw money the way they want to withdraw money. So right. I think what we're going to see is a continuation of the downwards trend in property. My advice to people is very simple, very clear. Get out of the China markets. Don't try to be the smartest guy in the room. You'll see a 15, 20% drop, and then people go, now it's going to recover. I'm not so sure. I don't see it. Right. Well, I also wonder about the prospect for uh, social unrest, as people euphemistically say, or a mass sort of cratering of support or willingness to tolerate the CCP. Uh, my understanding of, of old age uh, security slash social security in, in China is that it doesn't exist, that basically uh, yeah, when your husband it's, dies, it's, you it's, move it's, in it's with a, your it's a line. Stuff. It's basically a line for rule, to be honest with you. I mean, they basically feed you and that's it. Then you know, somebody comes along and no, nobody kicks you out of your house because they don't want to, nobody wants your house. It's collateral. So right. I, I think they have a huge, I think they have a huge problem. Um, the one thing they do have going for them and it's actually quite good, but I, I think they're not, I think the play is not in China is the exporters are still doing very, very well because the world is recovering. So exports picking up. So I don't buy this thing that there's not going to be, that they're going to have unrest because of lack of jobs. I think what's going to happen is you'll see people still earning money, but then their, their, their net, their wealth is going to not, not be what it needs to be to a certain point, maybe down the road, four or five years, if they can last that long, where people can start buying stuff again. In other words, you know, you've made some money, but they're also not moving up the value chain because, you know, there was this ridiculous thing that came out of CSIS the other day where they talked about state capitalism, you know, and far be it from me to make fun of a, a think tank, prestigious think tank in <laughs> oh, Washington, D.C. Right. But, but I mean, state, what is state capitalism? It's like a name they made up. You know, yeah. this is state capitalism. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Okay, right. A Leninist, a, a leader of a limit, a Leninist system has introduced something called state capitalism. And the worst thing is watching these guys on CNBC in Asia go, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. And it's like, no, it's not. It's basically somebody trying to be too clever, hoping something catches on state capitalism. 
I think the re- main reason CSIS does it is they think somebody in the Biden administration will go, hey, you know, this is what we can look at. And this is the type of things where the government can get involved. No, China is in for some real tough economic times. Xi Jinping is playing around up there um, with different. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing. Let's face it. You just can't. You can't have the hubris to think that you as one man or one group of men can somehow direct the Chinese economy. And unfortunately, all the China apologies for years have been, oh, you know, they're really so smart. No, they were cheap labor. We were buying cheap stuff and it worked for them. And that's all they've got going right now. You look at all their high tech companies, everything that's there, unless it's subsidized, they don't make a nickel. Huawei only exists because they have a massive market in China where they can subsidize everything outside of there. Right. Well, um, yeah, it seems like, like I said, it's, it's getting out of control. I take what, what you know, what you said about uh, money going to the U.S., the dollar appreciating as well, because New Zealand just uh, raised rates. It's what it's basically. I love it. People said it's the first wealthy country. Uh, to raise rates. The first advanced economy. Actually, uh, Korea would still be in that category. They raise rates. The Brazilians have gone from 2 to 6% um, because they see inflation. They see it's not transitory. Uh, they see the economy recovering. And basically that, unless you're a Karenista who wants the coronavirus to go on forever, that the Delta wave is coming, uh, is really, you know, declining. Anyway, you would expect all those currencies to appreciate against the dollar, other things being equal, but other things not being equal. And actually, even though we're facing higher taxes, including taxes on investment, which is all capital gains tax is, that um, compared to Europe, which is slow growth, Germany just uh, elected, uh, I guess, socialists. It seems like there was nothing on the ballot other than socialists. All of them worship the climate change god. Bojo, you know, the fourth, I think, disappointing uh, Tory prime minister in the UK. I just, you know, ugh. Um, Southeast Asia, it's sort of, you know, this is, it's one of my favorite growth markets, the the tigers, and they're just not tigers anymore, it seems. So where are you going to put your money? Um, And it's in the U.S. Sticking with the story, uh, since you're there in Taiwan, Wall Street Journal today reported um, that, and you called this uh, over a year ago, I think, or about about a year ago, last winter. I just saw them, that's all. (laughs) That's right. So uh, a couple dozen Marines in um, Taiwan reportedly training Taiwanese um, soldiers, and they didn't really go into much detail. It's a secret program, uh, but presumably small unit. I mean, if you're talking about a small number of means, they're probably not there to work on Patriot missiles. They're probably there to, to teach small unit combat techniques, um, you know, presumably guerrilla tactics that Taiwan could use even if the Chinese gained uh, a foothold. And of course, you saw these guys a year ago. You said you thought you, you may be, that it may be this. And I thought, now they're just technicians over there doing something like that. You know, um, it's interesting. In the story the Wall Street Journal put out, they said they had Matt Pottinger, our friend, who was the former deputy national security advisor, himself a former Marine, said he didn't know about it. Now, maybe it was just classified and he was obliged to tell a little fib. Um, but it also crossed my mind uh, that maybe uh, this is just the Pacific Command commander um, being a little bit entrepreneurial. And maybe he thinks, well, if I have four stores on my shoulder, I don't need to consult the president of the United States on sending 24 Marines to Taiwan. Nah. What do you think is going on over there? I think Matt doesn't have any obligation to tell anybody what he knows as the former national deputy national security advisor. And I think it's somewhat naive and arrogant for a reporter to go, what did you know then? I mean, I, I can't, any national security official can just say, I'm sorry, I didn't know about that. All right. 
And it's not a huge program. It's basically they're all over Asia. You bump into them in Indonesia. You bump into them in other places. Um, they're here. They're doing training. I mean, I think we know very well that, you know, the Air Force helps train these guys. They go all over the place, the world. They may fly. They may end up in Israel. They may end up in other places doing training. Look, here's the thing that kind of strikes me. This basically made the press back in June. In other words, the Pentagon somewhat denied it, okay? And they didn't really deny it. They just said no comment really more than anything else. But, I mean, they were filmed and it leaked and everybody in Taiwan took it for granted that they were here. Um, I think... Training is basically the U.S. also doing an assessment of the Taiwanese military. The Army has real issues. Um, so I think it's a two-pronged, a two-pronged uh, effort by the Americans. You know, 25, 30 trainers here, that's not the biggest thing in the world. They're running around. Maybe I heard it was as many as 40 or 50 at a time. Um, they got to have something to do in, the, in, in these, in these, in these, uh, in these um, commands. So they're over here, they're training small arm tactics, maybe instructing people on how to set up village resistance. So maybe what's happening is, is the Taiwanese are interested finally in what we would call the porcupine defense, which has been discussed for years and years. By the way, my favorite thing in Taiwan is all the Taiwan analysts, every time something comes up that Taiwan's doing, that essentially five 12-year-olds could come up with playing war. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, my son and his friends used to come up with it when they were like 12. They all take, well, you know, the porcupine strategy, we originally talked about this in our briefing paper. It's like, really? No. I think there's a bunch of guys who figured if they come, I mean, it's, 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 it's civil defense. The porcupine strategy is this. And I think this is what we've talked about this before, too, Chris, Christian. We've talked about this. And what I mean by we've talked about this is the question is, will Taiwan fight? That's an open question. You know, yes. the Chinese, the China, the, the, if Taiwan doesn't fight, then Taiwan, the Americans are not going to come. Why would we why would we come over and support you if you're not going to fight yourselves? That, those days are past. So my belief is, is this very promising thing could be that basically the 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 uh americans are going to teach how work with the taiwanese to get their basically army up and to get their ability to fight on the land up and then all right maybe the taiwanese i believe some people believe and i think it's correct after looking at it they could hold out for five or six months they got a hundred m1 tanks the chinese are not that good at what they do they've never been that good at at, at how they do things they're going to be trying to invade They'll be coming over hostile waters. There's no doubt the Americans would probably interdict if the if the Taiwanese are fighting and the Japanese would interdict. So they could hang out for a while. If they hang on for a while, that could be real problems for the mainland Chinese. So to me, I think it's a fantastic deterrent move. In other words, let the Chinese know, okay, you can come over and you you may have to land 400,000 troops with the Americans not wanting you to land 400,000 troops. You may have some real problems here. And it could become very, very, it can become very, very difficult. The only concern I have about the leak is this. My concern with the leak is that everybody kind of knew about it. There's no doubt Beijing knew about it. I mean, they've got, they got good intelligence in Taiwan. They knew about it. Nobody was saying anything about it. So my concern is why was it leaked? Why did it leak from the White House to two different people? It leaked to the uh, Reuters and it leaked to the Wall Street Journal. Why did it leak? My fear is 
that they basically leaked it because my fear is they basically leaked it because they're trying to show the Chinese how open they are about everything. I, I, there's a lot of mistrust <laughs> about the Biden administration over in Asia right now. There's a lot. People really are starting to wonder about what these guys are doing. When Biden said, I've talked to Xi Jinping about the agreement. Well, actually, he hadn't talked to him. He'd talked to him previously. And I don't think Donald Trump would have gotten away with saying, you know, he, people would have been hammering him. Oh, well, he talked to him previously. That's not the way it's that's not the way it, it, it works. You know what I'm saying? So to me, I think there's I think this story is still playing out. And also, we just had the incident where the USS Connecticut in the South China Sea, the submarine hit something. Now, we don't know if it hit a bunch of shipping containers in the water or if it bumped into, you know, the Kraken or it hit the, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, hit, it hit a Chinese submarine. I it can't could have hit Ted Kennedy's China. car. That's right. Floating down there. I can't I can't I can't believe that if it did hit a Chinese vessel, we wouldn't hear about it. In other words, I can't believe the Chinese submarine wouldn't have surfaced and gone nuts. And also, I, I don't I don't believe that the Chinese. So we'll see what it is. If they bumped into each other, well, they bumped into each other. But, you know, so far, nobody did. And that's the good thing. And she should be basically, apparently what they're saying is she'll be in Connect, she'll be in Guam by this weekend. And she's got destroyers huh. around her right now. So we'll see what happens. But, but it's, it's an interesting story. The Taiwan situation is very interesting. Right. Right. Well, and as you point out, it's important that the U.S. gain some confidence in Taiwan's ability to fight. <laughs> it's uh, was that line in the Dirty Dozen where uh, Sutherland was pretending to be a general. He's all scruffy and there's this fancy colonel and he goes, well, very pretty colonel, very pretty. Can they fight? <laughs> yes, sir. Um, there is a conventional wisdom in the military that the Taiwanese won't fight. I think that's wrong. I think they actually, you know, Hong Kong, the resistance we saw by people there are, who are just not willing to give up freedom for nothing. Uh, not that they were fighting. Some were actually fighting. But, um, you know, especially once you have freedom and democracy, the idea that you're just going to give it up willy-nilly without a peep. Um, Hong Kong proved that demonstra demonstrably wrong. The, the will of the Taiwanese people, who uh, I think, you know, have, have obviously strong similarities and are ethnically Chinese, like Hong Kongers. So we know that. And that's, that's, a, that's a change, you know, from the past. Some people said, well, you know, half of Taiwan is these old Chinese guys, and they just want to be part of China. And they're okay. Some are okay with the CCP, or some would be okay with a, a Hong Kong-like one country, two systems. I think we can discard that. The question now is, of course, the military means. And they have bought some, some equipment. The uh, Trump administration did rush out some uh, arms sales um, that, uh, you know, did contribute to the porcupine strategy. M1 tanks, howitzers. Um, and just sort of lower tech things that are still very good at repelling an invasion or causing problems, making Xi Jinping think twice. But, um, you know, until the U.S. military has that confidence that Taiwan will fight, um, you run the risk of a Pacific Command commander or a JCS chairman turning to the president in the first day of a war and saying, we don't think they're going to fight, which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because what president's going to want to sort of go to war for yeah. a country that won't fight? So. Um, hopefully this was the beginning of, of something big. Hopefully the Biden people don't trade it away uh, just to please the Chinese. I'm sure Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping will bring it up in his next conversation with Biden. So uh, we'll see. Yeah, no, it's 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 ongoing, never stops thing. Move your money to the U.S. <laughs> yes. Well, um, yes. And so moving on to go woke, go broke, um, your phrase. 
Um, you know, something we, we've talked about, you and I, before is the decline of National Review. Uh, when I was in college and coming out mid-90s, uh, there were really only two, three things out there. There was the Wall Street Journal editorial page, there was Rush uh, on the radio, and there was the National Review. Uh, there were other things, the Weekly Standard and such like that, but, you know, by and large, those were three pillars. And then you had this mushrooming of, um, of other uh, conservative thought. Uh, you know, there are other, uh, you know, um, publications and outlets out there that I'm not doing justice to, but really... Um, this is before Fox News um, and before this, the flowering of, of conservative um, thought and writing that came with the Internet. Now, I, National Review, I think, has been in a tailspin for a long time. And Victor Davis Hanson, I'm just going to read, read some of what he said here. He was on Tucker Carlson on Fox News explaining why he left National Review. He said he thinks they're glad he left, too. Um, and he says, I think uh, there were certain people in the Republican movement or establishment who felt it's their duty to internally police their own. And that's kind of a virtue signal to the left. We are just part of your class. We share the same values as you, and we keep our crazies in line. Um, and they're not empirical. Anyway, he basically just uh, condemned National Review for an arrogant, anti-Trump, anti-Tea Party, uh, elitist point of view. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been surprising to me because you see Rich Lowry, who I believe is still the boss over there, who writes things that uh, I think are, are perfectly decent, but he seems not to be in charge. And National Review is, has become not just a voice of, you know, sort of modern Rockefeller Republicans. If, if it was that and persuasive or interesting, that would still be one thing. But it's just sort of nagging, school-marming, uninteresting. Um, and I can't believe they're making any money. Uh, what do you think is cooking over there? Well, look, I'm a big fan of National Review. I, I, I know some people over there. Um, it is probably one of the most creative publishing operations there ever was. I mean, besides paying Bill Buckley's liquor bill and all that stuff for years, if those who remember Bill Buckley, the famous founder of it. But, you know, National Review is the one who did the uh, children's books, the first guys who ever did the children's books that were so successful. They're the ones who did these cruises. Remember the, the cruises where everybody yeah. gets on a cruise. And now all the ideology people do a cruise. You go on a cruise and, you know, you hang out with all these people who are similar to your uh, political views. Make a lot of money off that. It's never made money on the journalism. It's made money on everything around it. And that means the community that supports it. And I'll tell you a story. In 2017, 2016, I was in, in uh, New York City in the summer, and I got invited to a lunch. Somebody invited me to a lunch, and I went to a lunch, and it was basically, I think I paid 500 I gave them five, paid $500, but National Review has this board of donors, because people, it's very smart, give your money to a publication rather than giving your money to some think tank. So $100,000 a year, you get on their board, and they use that money to publish. I sat there for probably two hours and 20 minutes and saw the, 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 the writers and the staff go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the donors. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Just literally the donors were completely against them. And before the thing had started, I was sitting there, kind of a nobody, just standing there. These two older gentlemen, which is saying a lot, were talking to me and they were asking me what I thought of Trump. And I was like, well, you know, I'm a Republican. I said, there's a lot of stuff that drives me nuts. But I said, I can't imagine having to deal with four years of Hillary. And so, you know, I'm going to support him and I'm going to vote him. And they said, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I literally heard that the week following 
was the week after all the writers was the week that they actually attacked Trump the hardest at National Review. So it's kind of petty stuff. And I think that's what Hanson's talking about. In other words, it's just he's a very serious man. Hanson's a deep thinker. He's at the Hoover Institution. He's got intellectual chops far above what a lot of people were there. He was I, I think he's not looking to run the run the magazine, but why why would you want to have all your stuff in one on page three, four, and five? And then on pages six, seven, and eight, it's some guy just taking shots at people. I'm surprised people like David Mamet have stayed but it is what it is it's kevin williamson and all these guys there and i know this is inside the baseball for some people but let me bring it back down what this is it's no different than the athletic for those of know that's the sports publication that failed in its sale to the new york times give the new york times credit they saw something that wasn't worth what it is but because i am a sports guy i love sports nobody reads the athletic the athletics always doing stuff about oh the struggle of the women's soccer teams for equal pay and equality. Oh, what's it like to be, you know, a gay football player, you know, in the team? Everything is social, social, woke, woke, woke. And in a way, really, the National Review did the same thing. It's a conservative publication. It's got its readership is rock solid Republican. You know what I'm saying? And they went over the top. And I don't know if they'll ever be able to come out of it. You know, I mean, right now you just have a web presence. You can stay up there. People are working from home. But my question is, is are they ever going to be able to do what they do? And here's the thing that I, I, I do see. You leave, a, you lose a guy like Victor David Hansen. I don't know how you replace him. There's nobody on that staff that replaces that guy. You know, this is a guy, every time he writes something, it come, people are looking for it. So well, I, I do criteria. Believe, I, I, I their think criteria, which whole... is probably anti-Trump, anti-Tea Party, anti, yeah. you know, sort of new party. I've, I've always said, you know, the go woke stuff is really more about I just want to do what I want to do. And I want I have my views and I'm going to try to make you live by my views. I, I, I've never found a real ideology behind it other than like, you know, people saying I want to do this. I want to do that. The number of in, in my world of journalism before this number of woke people that I broke was phenomenal. And it was just basically <laughs> along the lines. Look, if you want to keep doing this, you're not going to do it here. They want to, they want to be there. Okay. Right. That's what it is. Well, Jimmy Lyons go. is public. They can go right. someplace else. And that's when we were talking earlier about Dave Chappelle, where I find Chappelle so fascinating, comedian so fascinating, you know? So right. yeah, it's going to be something to watch. Well, it, it, and to, to round that out, also to talk about declining brands uh, in uh, media broadly defined here, Saturday Night Live. You know, I didn't catch the first wave of good uh, Saturday Night Live, SNL, as we call it now. Oh, it used to be so um, good. You know, I was too young for Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, um, uh, Bill Murray, Belushi, when they were on live. Of course, I've seen some of their stuff. But I did catch the second wave of the late 80s and the 90s when I was in high school. Uh, you had Phil Hartman, Dennis Miller. Um, Dana Carvey and a number of others. Uh, and it was, it was good. It was hit or miss, but it was worth actually watching on Saturday night live on Saturday night. Excuse me. Now. I mean, it's, it's sort of become a cliche to beat it as being this, this desiccated mummy corpse of what it used to be dried out husk. Um, so they do this new impersonation of Biden. The guy has some of the mannerisms and the voice down okay, but they completely pull punches. It's clear that they are afraid to hit yeah. someone on the left. They did do a very harsh um, 
segment about parents showing up at school boards who are upset that, you know, their kids are being taught a bunch of Marxist nonsense. Of course, you know, the skit just made fun of parents, not the not the bureaucrats. Um, this is made by uh, NBC, a unit of Comcast. Last I checked, these things change pretty quickly. Um, you know, juxtapose that. So clearly in decline, incidentally, off like 30 to 50 percent, depending on how you measure this season versus last season. And last season wasn't that good, um, although they did have Elon Musk. Uh, Kids in the Hall, a uh, also sort of uh, vintage early 90s Canadian similar type show. Uh, I was just thought of it as sort of a, a bunch of probably stoned, pretty funny guys uh, who are being dusted off and brought back. And you think, huh, maybe we could import some actual comedies. Aside from Dave Chappelle, there isn't a whole lot going on in the US. Unfortunately, still being produced by the same guy who does Saturday Night Live, Lauren Michaels. What do you think, uh, what do you think's going on there? And do you think there's any chance we'll, we'll, we'll get around this sort of desert of, um, of PC comedy? No, because I, I think what's happening is when I talk about Chappelle, one of the economic I always look at the business model somebody has. Comedians are like rock bands or singers or somebody like that. They're almost impossible to cancel. It's very difficult to cancel someone who just sticks by their guns. Okay, if you have a TV show, maybe you can't get on the TV show. They block you here or there. You lose advertisers. But if you have a direct relationship with your audience, Dave Chappelle is a classic example. Joe Rogan is a classic example. Essentially, uh, there was a comedian called Tom Seguer. He went out, not Tom, Bert, whatever his name is. Uh, he, he went out and he basically stood in the back of pickup trucks during COVID in drive-in theaters and made money. So if you're funny, no matter who you insult, as we saw with Louis C.K., Norm MacDonald, and all these other people, no matter who you insult, doesn't matter. You can still get a venue. Somebody will rent it to you. A thousand people will show up. They will pay 20 bucks a pop. You will make $10,000 a night. You can do that three times a week in different towns. You will live a decent life. No one's going to put you out. And that's one of the things that I think Dave Chappelle is still to this day, he walked away from close to $50 million because he just said, I can't do it. Now, of course, he had he admits he had a few million dollars in his pocket already, so he could do it. And he was a younger man. But the point being is that when you look at Saturday Night Live, I don't know, I think it's, it sits there in that 1230 slot. They probably earn a small amount of money. They've got relationships with advertisers. They pay those people almost nothing, by the way. But I mean, you don't make much money working on Saturday Night Live until you start really, you know, getting 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 more seen. That's why they all leave. I mean, sooner or later, they want to make more money. Right. Um, you can do movies and things like that. But the real point is, and the real thing that happens is, is that I think it's hard to cancel these things. The problem is there's a, I want to say there's a problem, but the fact is there's a market for this stuff. Looking at Steve, look at Steve Colbert. I can't even watch Stephen Colbert. I, he is just not a funny guy. But I think the same can be said about Greg Gutfeld. It's just Gutfeld's got a bigger audience. But a, a liberal's not going to want to watch the Greg Gutfeld show. Jimmy Kimmel's always being mean. J Jimmy Fallon's about the last one. James Corden's always doing, you know, he goes off every once in a while. But I think the thing is, as long as these people have their niches, they'll be able to hold on. Conan was the one who finally 
just disappeared. But I always thought that was laziness on his part more than anything else. I mean, you know, he got his big payout. He had money because he, he took, took himself down to 30 minutes a night because he didn't want to do a full hour show. And then he's just decided to leave. And I guess he's going to be on YouTube or someplace else down the road. But it is what it is. And the man's worked very, very hard his entire life. So, you know, give him, give him, if, he wants to, if he doesn't want to work anymore, give him a break for it. But I think comedians are the last ones, the last ones who, um, comedians are the last ones who can really, and singers, you know, who can make money. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to see. And I think that's why you see comedians, they're more conservatives to comedians. There's a lot of conservative singers out there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people would be surprised. Movie actors and actresses, not so much because they basically they can be canceled. They have to be part of an ensemble. They have to be part of a whole organization so somebody can knock them off. But, you know, if you're Ozzy Osbourne or if you're somebody <laughs> else, you know what I'm saying? All you got to do is get up there and what's that guy from Twisted Sister? You know, he was he was having some trouble for seriously. He was having some trouble for a while. And he started playing up and down with some friends. He was 500. He said, I did fine. He said, you know, I was making 40. I was reading an article. He said, making 40, 50,000 a month. That's a lot of money. Not bad. Yeah. 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 For, for people who uh, sort of set out intentionally not to have serious jobs. So uh, yeah, I mean, trivia, that's, about, that's uh, trivia about Conan O'Brien is he was, I believe, the writer of the famous monorail episode of The Simpsons season four, 1993, back when they were really, really good. That was a long time ago. It's all the time we have for this episode of Simon and White. And I'm Christian White. And thanks for being with us. And thanks to Mark Simon live on Freedom's care, Frontier in Taiwan.